Hello and welcome to Cybersecurity Sessions. I am Danny Middleton-Wren, Head of Media at Netizia. Today I am joined by Matthew Gracie McMinn, Head of Threat Research at Netizia, Chris Collier, Head of Solutions Engineering, and Gaz Clark, Solutions Engineer. And we are going to be discussing skip lagging and AI versus capture, as well as our bot attack of the month, Scraperbox. So topic number one of today's podcast, we are going to cover skip lagging or hidden city ticketing. This is where instead of booking a direct flight to your intended destination, it's cheaper to book a flight elsewhere that has a connection at your intended destination. You then just don't board the next flight on your itinerary. And airlines are battling to stop this practice because it is losing them money. American Airlines have taken the website Skiplag to court and are reportedly banning passengers who use their services and cancelling their frequent flyer miles. Meanwhile, Lufthansa has unsuccessfully sued a passenger who Skiplagged in 2019. So I'm absolutely fascinated by this practice. So to start with, let's dig into what Skiplagging actually is and how it works and why people are able to hack the system using this technique. Matt, do you want to start us off with a quick overview of what skip flagging is? Yep, quite happy to do so. So skip flagging essentially is where you book a connecting flight through to a, a final destination. So let's say I wanted to go and holiday in New York. I've got a nice hotel booked in New York. And I look at flights to New York and say they're about £800. Quite expensive, quite steep. Uh, but I see there's a flight to say San Francisco that connects through New York that's about £500. But potentially, let's say I don't want to take my suitcase, so it won't transfer. I could just fly to New York, get off the plane and not get on my connecting flight. And then I've essentially had a flight to New York for about £500 instead of £800. As a consequence, my seat on the second flight will go unfilled. No one will be honest or anything like that, which is quite frustrating for the airlines, as you might imagine. Uh, But essentially, it gives me a, a better price. And all I'm doing is losing the ability to take my suitcase. It's a rather simple idea that takes advantage of sort of market dynamics and that sort of thing to try and essentially get a cheaper price and take advantage of the physical connection where you're physically in the city you want to get to without needing to get onto a second one. And so I suppose it's a ethical question, would you say, rather than a legal question at this point. From the reading I've been doing into the Lufthansa case, they said they stated in their terms and conditions that, well, it goes against their policy, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's illegal. It just means that Lufthansa, if they want to take somebody to court about it and sue as they have done, then they are within their rights. But I suppose for the passenger, it's an ethical question whether they're happy to leave that seat unfilled on their connecting flights, but it's not illegal. They are just playing the system. And if it comes down to, say, if you're a frequent flyer and you're thinking, oh, great, I can save myself 500 pounds to a thousand pounds here then I'm going to do it because I've, you know, over the course of a year, you could save yourself an awful lot of money. Yeah, there there is an ethical element of it. Personally, I feel a bit not too comfortable with the idea. I mean, I appreciate people want to save money, cost of living crisis and all that. Personally, though, it feels a little bit deceptive. You know, when you're booking an airline ticket, you're actually entering a contract with someone you're doing. So it feels to me kind of bad faced. Uh, And like you say, it's a breach of terms of service. So you are putting yourself at risk there. It's also the climate question. You know, that second flight, like you say, is going to run. The plane's going to fly because they think there's going to be people on it. If, say, two thirds of the plane, uh, people on the plane on that layover flight decide not to get on it because they just want to stop at the layover, that plane could be running at, say, one third of the people or possibly in extreme situations with no one on it, which is not great for the environment, let's be honest. Thanks, Matt. So let's 
expand on that business impact a little, Chris. So Matt touched on a few points there, including the financial impacts, the competition in the market, and what is driving passengers to skip lag. What is the financial impact going to be on airlines? And what do you think that their perspective is on skip lagging and why they are now really cracking down on it? Why are we seeing the likes of Lufthansa and United Airlines and American Airlines? Why are we seeing them start to react so much to this? Well, I think the airline pricing logic is an incredibly complicated thing Vita has to do. I think like whenever you think about any sort of competitions and markets, it's it's incredibly hard for you and your competitors to be able to continually keep outpricing each other, particularly on particular routes and things like that. I think why you're starting to see this emergence of skip lagging is because you have two different types of travelers, really. When you think about it, you have people that travel for business, you have people that travel for leisure, and you're going to find that the more leisure orientated routes are going to probably be cheaper because they're going to want people to fill those seats and get people on those planes and things like that. Whereas things that are maybe more business orientated routes so like Boston to Houston as an example that would probably be for me considerably more business orientated right Boston massive tech hub and stuff like that in the US same with Houston in Texas as an example you'd expect to be a lot of business people on those flights but let's say for argument's sake it was a flight from Houston to Las Vegas but for some bizarre reason you did some sort of weird layover in Boston as an example and that's the intended area and that's how you've then got that cheaper because it may be that the operator that you're working with is actually having to fight competition in order for them to actually price that particular flight i.e. from Houston to Las Vegas with a layover in Boston as an example cheaper than the vast majority of the other competitors versus in that particular market i.e. just Houston to Boston, as an example, and the operators that actually run that route, because you've also got to take into account not all operators will fly every route either as well, right? And so I've barely even scratched the surface and you can see how complicated it can get just from a pricing perspective alone and the routes that you're actually operating on. Why do people do it? Well, let's be fair, consumers want to get the best thing that they can get for the least amount of money that they can spend. Like we are in a lot of areas of the world right now in some sort of economic crises, inflation is quite high and stuff like that. So yeah, you can understand why consumers wouldn't possibly want to do that. I mean, it's not something that I've ever done. And like, like you, I wasn't really aware that people were doing this until fairly recently. And I find it kind of fascinating that you can actually get hold of tickets for longer haul flights, as an example, in quite a lot of cases albeit split over two journeys for cheaper than going somewhere that's maybe a lot of a shorter distance as an example uh, which I find it interesting. Really it's (laughs) interesting because it's kind of what train lines have started to do but they've legitimized it. You can get a train fare Mm -hmm. and do a split save. They offer that and say we will facilitate you getting a better rate for your journey and you can save yourself a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So do we think this is a direction that the airlines will take? It's an interesting one, isn't it, when you think about it, because you can understand why airlines like Lufthansa and American Airlines are taking people to task about it, because it's not just the financial impact of potentially losing money because you're not operating the entire both journeys, as an example. It may be that the connecting flight was somebody else's and they've got to pay half of that fare over to to the other airline. But what I think a lot of people don't think about is the knock-on effect that actually by you missing that connecting flight, right? So you're going to have potential delays for other people that need to get on those planes while they're waiting and calling your name and you're just never going to turn up for that flight. That can lead to fines for those airlines as well, purely and simply because they have turnaround times. So like when planes land in airports, they have to have them cleaned, people off, baggage off, 
reloaded and people back on them and back out again within certain periods of time and stuff like that. And they have to push away from the gate and be in the air within certain periods of time. And they have very tight deadlines. Like a lot of people don't realize how busy the air actually is and how many planes are all over the place at any one given time. And when you're intentionally not going for that flight, you've got the potential delays of that, but then also the running costs of flying a flight that's at less capacity and you're still having to burn all of that fuel that you've had to basically fill the plane with for no reason. Yeah, and to carry a certain number of people with a certain weight distribution. Yeah, there are so many mm-hmm. things that you might have both pointed out that are, uh, yeah, absolutely things that people probably won't consider if they're using the system, just thinking purely on an economical scale about what they can personally save. Gary, let's have a think about some of the technical issues at play here. So aside from taking skip lagged and other services to court or banning passengers, is there another technical solution for airlines to prevent skip lagging? Yes, well, I suppose it depends on the, the source of the information, where, where it's coming from, because anyone could go online, read about skip lagging. Anyone who knows what skip lagging is, then they can just go to the airline and try and exploit the system and look for cheaper flights that way. So in, in terms of technically putting a solution against that, it, it's going to be very difficult. There are things they could do, for example, like on the website, when you're going to check out, they could issue you with a warning stating that if you're not going to be completing the all legs of your journey, then you're going to be issued with a fine or something along those lines. Even at the airport, they could, I think Matt stated before that you could get on a flight. If you're not checking in any bagging, it, it's fine because you're not going to lose anything, but they could force you to check in any hand luggage there. So if, if you get off before the end of the journey, then you're going to lose that hand luggage. So in terms of that, there's, there's not really much they can do. But when you look at sites such as skitlad.com, they get the data by actively scraping these airlines. They look for travel data and price data. And I think the only way to combat that is if you get some kind of scraper blocking strategy. And to do that, you're going to have to implement some kind of bot management solution that specializes in web scraper detection and mitigation. And what that'll do is it'll block all requests from certain websites, stop that data being pulled, and it'll stop it being accessible in real time. Gary, you made some points there about what, on the technical side, the airlines can be doing to prevent scraping activity and stop that ability to collate all of that data in an automated fashion and put it on an aggregator site like Skiplagged and make that option available to people. But what else can businesses be doing to influence customer and passenger behavior that is perhaps drilling down to that ethical stance and reinforcing it. I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about what they've done with the court case from a Lufthansa point of view. And I think they're actually appealing that, haven't they? Because I think the courts in Germany actually found in the passenger's favor because it was to do with pricing and the fact that they wanted the funds back for basically the flights that he'd not basically paid for. I think there's maybe the moral side of it and i think if they'd have gone to court with a more moral standpoint on it as well i think it'd be interesting to see organizations and businesses like lufthansa american airlines and other airlines think about the actual environmental impact of what this is actually doing and have a more moral view on it than one of the financial impact that they're actually getting and i think that maybe if they were to stand up and be a bit more like guys we get that obviously you want to fly cheaper and things like that and we are trying to work on how to be able to do that but what you're doing is essentially just as bad as you throwing plastic in the ocean yeah i think it is a difficult one that's why i say the subject is so fascinating because in a time when we are all struggling for cash that is why skip lagged is thriving yeah i I wonder 
they were perhaps more transparent around why there is this pricing yeah. differential because from a consumer perspective, it does seem a bit counterintuitive that if I'm flying to one place and then to another place, that's cheaper than flying to just the first place. That is very counterintuitive to just how we, we look at pricing and how it should work. So consumers do tend to feel like, am I being taken advantage of here? And then suddenly it's like, if I'm being taken advantage of, I don't mind taking advantage of you in return if I've got that, that option. So perhaps a bit more transparency around where those prices come from. You might find customers and probably even the courts are a bit more sympathetic towards the airlines as well. Absolutely. So it seems like what the airlines can be doing is saying, this is why, this is the, like saying, Matt, provide that justification for the pricing. It might be because, as Chris has already observed, you've got the competition in a high traffic business route and that's why the price is what it is or it might be competition in the market that allows them to justify it could be increase in price of fuel which we've seen a lot over the last few years especially with a geopolitical activity there are lots of different reasons why prices have escalated i think that transparency is key from the airlines making sure that customers understand the impacts of their own decisions when it comes to purchasing flights and it not showing up for flights what that cumulative effect is, it is going to have a knock-on effect that many of us wouldn't even consider. You think, well, I'm one person, the flight's going to be going anyway. But if we all think like that, we're in big trouble. And then Gaz, to your point about how platforms like Skiplagged can be stopped, what airlines can do, we need to think about what technical approaches we can take to enable airlines to prevent that activity. And that is, for the most part, going to be detecting and preventing scraper bots and the like which we will explain in greater depth as we go on later when we go on to our attack of the month. Bot attacks are becoming more frequent, more time-consuming to stop, and cause untold damage to your brand. Thankfully, Netasea Agentless Bot Management detects up to six times more threats and stops bots automatically. Block more bad bots. Go to netasea.com. Okay, so let's move on to topic number two, AI versus capture. So we're all familiar with capture. The puzzles were sometimes shown by web services to prove that we are human and not those pesky bots. These have evolved from simply typing in some numbers and letters to clicking on traffic lights or bridges within grids of squares to even more elaborate and difficult tests like non-existent AI-generated images. However, a recent study from the University of California concluded that bots are now faster and more accurate at solving capture puzzles than humans. And it's by some degree. If we look at those figures, it's something like between 51% and 84% of humans will accurately solve a capture test. Whereas the bots, it ranges from, depending on the type of capture test, it can range between 97 and 100%. That is a much higher successful completion rate. So then you've got Elon Musk weighing in, and he has concluded the only way to stop bots at scale on his X app was via and we may all have predicted that this would be his response via his premium subscription model. <laughs> may shall laugh on it. He does regularly. <laughs> so let's have a think about that. University of California research. It's a really interesting paper. I encourage anybody to have a read of it. It's extremely thorough and it really explains why sophisticated bots particularly are able to do this. And it highlights how bots have evolved over time. Captures were put in place a long time ago. And it raises the question of, is capture alone a good enough way to tackle bots? Or does there need to be something more in place? So let's start with Matt. Does this research align with what you've seen regarding capture bypasses? Because I know you've done a lot of research in this area. 
Yeah, 100%. Uh, absolutely 100% aligns with what we've seen. In fact, uh, our own research uh, and that the we've looked into it really highlighted one key point, which is that what it's originally used for was to distinguish between humans and bots on websites. And then people thought, what a great way to train AI as well. You know, uh, Google, for instance, used those old text-based stats to train their Google Books project so they could recognize the words in the books. And we've used it since to train image-based AI. So basically, every time you're filling in the character, you are actually feeding information to an AI model telling it, you know, this is what a bridge looks like. This is what traffic lights look like. This is what bicycles look like. All of that information was put into AI models. So as a civilization... <laughs> Everyone on the internet has been collectively working together to train AIs to be really, really good at doing the thing that gets past capture. And then we're a kind of acting surprised now that computers are really good at getting past capture. The combined human effort involved in training these is probably quite substantial. I would suspect probably more than went into training chat GPT. And we were surprised by that. So it's not really a huge surprise to discover that you know, bots are now better than humans at getting through capture. In fact, I almost suspect that we might get to the point where we provide captures and if you fail it, we let you through. If you pass it, we block you. That would always be more effective at this point. Obviously, we, we deal with bots at SSCR, so we see automated attacks over the internet all the time. And attackers actually have for years now put capture bypass services. And there's a whole sort of subsidiary ecosystem of capture bypass services that uh, provide API endpoints. Bots that are here to capture can make a request out to this service, and it's usually charged about $1 to $3 per thousand capture solves. Uh, they make a request out to the service, and it will solve the capture for them and let the, let the bot through. It's very cheap, very effective, and most of those bots advertise a success rate against any sort of capture, all the different providers of capture. I think they advertise success rates of well over 95%, often in 99.999% success rate. And our testing of these services showed that they're not really lying about that, unfortunately. I really like your point there, Matt, that the failure rate is probably a better way to go. If that's the way to prove you're human, fail that test. I, I, I would like them to go that way because I, I have in my team become almost famous for my ability to fail capture repeatedly. <laughs> so it would be nice if we could switch that way so I could get through yeah, and I think the report also quoted some demographic statistics as well about the time it takes for people of certain ages to pass the test. And I think you're just never going to get that that with bots, are you? Bots don't have an age. They're just going to do it instantly. Whereas with a human, if you maybe if you incorporate either the, the failures for success, great, or if you start to measure the time it takes for somebody to pass a test, rather than simply being somebody's ability to pass a test, then perhaps we'd have something to go on to justify that it's a human being rather than a bot. That does actually raise an interesting point on the history of capture bypass, though, because originally before AI got good enough for people to, to use that to bypass, the way past it when humans were better was actually to outsource it to a human. So the original capture bypass services would just send them to think, think sweatshops almost of people solving captures. And on average, these people solve captures probably once every 18 seconds or so. But they'd just be solving loads and loads of captures. And that actually raised a lot of ethical concerns because the, that was the amount they paid it was pretty much just slave labor at that point. Conversely, though, uh, when you look at the sort of AI models, at least that's sort of replacing that human slavery. So that there are some, some good elements to this development as well because we, what we've seen with a lot of the capture bypass services, they're moving to the AI models. It's better than having humans solve it. 
and people do look for rapid passing of capture and so forth as examples. And instead, AI models know that that gets them more. So they, they delay it and they try to act more human. I was about to say human-like, but it's not actually human. The bots are now more human than the humans, apparently. So we're in this really weird situation uh, of, if you are identified as a bot, you're probably a human at this point. Yeah. And like you said, we've trained them. We've given them all this information about ourselves. We've passed it on. But those sweatshops that you referred to, so Chris, they're often called click farms or were called click farms, and they were a much bigger part of the capture bypass system. So Chris, you, I believe, experienced working in a capture click farm for a day. I certainly did. Yeah. Many, many moons ago when we were very first starting to look into capture farms and things like that, I think Tom and I decided that we were going to go and spend an hour just having a go and seeing how much, how many captures we could solve and how much money we could make. And Matt is absolutely correct. I think in half an hour, we made about 10p. And we were solving captures literally one after the other for half an hour solid. And I think we made about 10p. And that was what was really interesting about the evolution of it, just looking at it from that point of view. Like when we very first started to say, huh, are they actually farming these captures out to people to actually solve these as ways of getting past them? We then found those services, thought, huh, how easy is it actually to employ yourself? Could you actually make a living wage on doing this, right? Because let's have a look at it. Obviously not, no. But what was interesting though is they had lots of sites that had lots of profiles of people that were working there and saying oh, how, how great their life was because they were working for them and solving the captures and stuff like that. When honestly, I don't know how they were making any money at all, which is kind of interesting. Our recent infiltration of one of those capture farms. So some of them talk quite extensively about the sort of ethical angle of human slavery or as you say, you know, we're paying $100 a month to some of these employees, which in parts of the world that they're employed in is really good. And it's better that, that they're in front of a computer than a toxic factory or something like that. Uh, so that they're much better off. But when we actually joined those capture projects and started working on them, what we found was that to hit that $100 a month, you'd have to be solving a capture on average every 18 seconds. So basically you'd have to be solving captures for 16 hours a day, seven days a week you would still have to solve a capture every 18 seconds. So no breaks, 16 hours a day, seven days, toilet, no food, no sleep, nothing, just working uh, flat out to reach that $100. So we don't think anyone actually is. And the ethics of it, like you're saying, Chris, it's pretty awful gig. Certainly not minimum wage. No, no, no. significantly <laughs> not. And the likelihood of somebody reaching that, like you said, $100 a month ceiling is absolutely, un it's not going to happen, is it? Like you say, it's unless you are under some sort of torturous environment where you are unable to leave your desk and you are only there without sleep, without toilet breaks, without food for 16 hours a day. And if you're in gainful employment, then I don't think that's going to happen, is it? I think your previous terminology of slave labor is probably the most accurate. And hopefully we will start to see these capture farms dissipate. Okay, so let's go on to the technical elements here. So Gary, do you want to talk about whether capture is still useful in determining who is bots and who is human? So how has that, as bots have become more sophisticated, how has capture actually adapted to suit the new environment? I just want to say first that I'm team capture, so I'm very much in favor of capture. And I think it definitely can differentiate between a human and a bot. I, th I think it's worth thinking about is that people trying to bypass captures, not a brand new thing. 
you know, Capture's been around since the turn of the century. And just as Capture's been there that long, so has people been trying to work smarter, you know, using different techniques such as automation, bots, um, other methods such as Capture Firming. We've just been talking about Capture Firming then, and that's been around since the days of YouTube and MySpace when, when they first started using Capture. So that's that's been around a very long time too. There's always going to be people trying to pass capture and there's always going to be different iterations of capture trying to make it harder for people to do that. What we've seen at Netsy is that capture does work on bots and all you need to do is look at the statistics of the, the capture served versus the capture pass. And if you do that, you can see that the capture pass rate is extremely low and the capture pass rate in this instance being low is very good because what you're seeing is that a lot of these captures aren't being attempted at all because the bots don't know what to do with them however some bots can and a lot of bots do in fact pass capture so you shouldn't solely rely on capture to stop bots you, what you should be doing really is using it in tandem with other methods such as netasia bot management solution for example so um, what happens there is that even if a bot's passed capture don't stop monitoring those requests and then if that bot does start to exhibit bot-like behavior the machine learning models will pick that up and then you can upgrade that request to a hard block. And what we're seeing there is that the false positives is still really, really low. I think out of a million requests, you can count the number of false positives on maybe one or two hands. So I think in summary there that although capture can be useful in stopping bots, it's wise to use it in conjunction with another blocking strategy for best results. But why is it that the sophistication of bots today requires that extra level and what is it that Netseer bot management for instance what is it that today's bot management solutions need to look for to tackle bots in addition to capture yeah so i think with um, with capture it basically focuses on one request so can i pass that capture can i click this button can i select the monkey out of the list of animals just as an example but what bot management solutions do is they continue tracking those requests coming from that person that 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 offer that that bot and then they can build a bigger picture then to determine if it's malicious intent so i suppose with capture you just focus in on one or two maybe very small requests but bot management focuses on a much bigger user journey so would you say that capture still plays a valid role in helping build a wider picture of the of a single user's journey and whether they are in fact human or bot i'd say yes because as i mentioned before we are seeing a lot of bots being served capture and they're just not attempting them because they don't know how to so i still think it's a very important part of bot mitigation it forms an important part of defense in depth like harry says it, it stops the simple bots it stops the less sophisticated ones that's great it gets rid of all of those more sophisticated ones that can get through you need additional defenses to stop those but this is the whole principle of defense going back way, way into the, the past. You know, you don't just build your walls and then if the enemy gets past them, go, well, that, that's that. I guess we, we give up sort of thing. You know, you put layers of walls, you put layers of defenses uh, in your fortified position. And it's the same principle here in cybersecurity. Great. Thank you both for that. That was really helpful. But let's nip on to Elon Musk's perspective here, because obviously everyone has their opinions about the effectiveness of capture and how bots are manipulating the system. So let's have a look at this from just like a factual <laughs> point of view, right? A user of Twitter posted a link to some additional research with an image of some of the research statistics showing the absurdly fast and incredibly 
great statistics that you can use ML for solving capture and things like that. And I went and had a read of that research and you're right, it's incredibly in depth and it was really good. So I do urge people to go and have a read of it if you can get your hands on it, because it was great. But what's really interesting is obviously the user wasn't the person that actually published that research in any way, shape or form. So it was not part of the research team. And Musk is the owner of the platform. <laughs> so he needs cash to be injected into the, his business and he's absolutely going to use basically his platform to push his agenda and what's really interesting about it though is when you actually look at the research that the researchers used the alexa top 100 as part of their research and twitter when i checked it yesterday ranked seventh so it was absolutely part of that research whether they call it out and say it yes or no it was absolutely part of that research and we're like coming up to close to a year of the Musk era of Twitter now. And I'll be honest, besides this interesting rebrand that we've got going on and the management reshuffle, I'm not really sure that there has anything that's technically changed over at Twitter right now in order for him to boldly claim that by paying them money, your bot problem seems to go away. And what is even more interesting is if you go and have a quick look at their page to talk about X premium, even though he's touting it as a, as a selling point as to why it's really good, it's not listed anywhere on there as a USP as to why you would want to pay them. So he's always had a very interesting stance on bots, hasn't he? Particularly on Twitter, mm. <laughs> to be fair, let's be honest, in that platform in particular. But I, I don't see how paying him more money or paying Twitter money is going to solve the problem. It's one of those situations where you need to have, as Matt and as Gary have said, you have to have layers of defenses at this, right? So, oh, bots are great at passing capture now. That's why you need to pay me more money. There's a lot of other things that I think are different about him pushing that, like his agenda in that regard, more purely from a financial point of view than for any other reason. Yeah, I mean, his tweets or... Are they called X's now? I didn't really know. Um, but he stated that past bot defenses are failing, which we know to be true, and only subscription works at scale. But that seems like a very arbitrary comment because he hasn't stated what his subscription service does to enhance bot protection there. He's just then quoted within that tweet the table from the University of California research, which to your observation there does kind of imply some ulterior motive there. And he also said that telling AI bots apart is becoming increasingly difficult and will soon be impossible. And the only social networks that will survive will be those that require verification. So perhaps there has been some kind of game plan here all along and we're seeing the fruits of that labor. The guy's not daft. Like, and, and say what you want about him and his personal life and the way that he talks and stuff like that. Like the guy's not daft. He isn't daft. He's, he's, he's built tech companies his entire career basically and so I, I can understand why there may be stuff that's going on in the background that we're just not aware of and things like that right however you'd think that if he wants to be more transparent and get more people to subscribe and stuff like that then be more transparent about what it is that you're doing to combat this problem on the platform like let's be fair there's massive brands out there like particularly like trainer brands as an example from a scalping point of view that are massively vocal about what it is that they're trying to do to 
defend their platforms from bots and getting hold of things or impersonating people and things like that. Whereas the particular, the statement where it's like past bot defenses are failing and only subscription works at scale, how to say something but say nothing at the exact yeah. same time. You know what I mean? Like it's one of those. And it doesn't take into consideration Gary's point from earlier that capture can be effectively used as part of a wider bot protection strategy. It is just totally wiping it out as an option, which again is very narrow-minded. It almost seems that at times, having watched the sort of push response to bots over the last year, that there's almost that sort of, the, the sort of silver bullet, the magic bullets that will solve this problem. And we, we see that a lot with a lot of companies that we work with as well. There's a sort of, what is the one thing I can do that will solve this? And like any security problem, there isn't one thing. You're, you're dealing with a complex variety of problems and you need that that layered defense, each defense is sort of a counter to a different style of attack. And so long as an attacker is going to get what they want from an attack, they are going to be motivated to try to overcome those defenses. So putting in place subscriptions and so forth, that, that's great. That will reduce the number of attackers because for some it's like it's no longer worth it. The return on investment is not worth me actually putting in the money to get around all the time or the resource to get around that defense. But for some people, it will still be worth it. Uh, unless you start putting ridiculous prices in. And again, for some people, it might still actually be worth them, them paying that. They may have the resources to do it to get the returns that, that they want. We know that Twitter has been used in the past to spread propaganda and disinformation for people who are interested in particularly American elections and trying to influence the outcome of that. We've got an American election coming next year, so we're we'll very interested to see how bots will act on Twitter and how much investments our nation states in particular, who have largely unlimited funds, we're very interested to see how much they are willing to invest in trying to influence these social media platforms that are increasingly trying to stop the influence bots from running on. And particularly now that X is privatized, right? Yeah, it is private owned company now. I don't think it's listed anymore since obviously Elon took over it. And I think I suppose that that's where it then becomes a little bit more interesting, isn't it? Because it's not a case of that you're trying to appease shareholders and stuff like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously, when you're working in a publicly traded company, there's a lot of stuff that you're obviously trying to do, but the shareholders are also part of that, right? bit different when your commander-in-chief is the commander-in-chief and yeah. that's it. There's no shareholders. And if he says, this is what we're going in and this is the direction, I don't know. Okay, so obviously, as we've already discussed today, scraper bots and the tirade of activity and for all they can cause businesses. We mentioned it with skip lagging earlier, but let's have a discussion about this bot attack type as our attack of the month. So Matt, can I start with you to give us a little recap on what scraper bots are? So scraper bots are one of the, perhaps the the simpler types of bots in many ways, because they're fairly easy to understand. So a scraper bot's job essentially is to extract information from a target site. The goal, essentially what it does is think of it as a sort of almost a spider that goes across a website, visits all the pages that may be of interest to it, and extracts the relevant information it's after from those pages and reports that back to an originating source. Now, that sounds very simple, but there's a wide variety of applications for that, some of which mean that that is a self-contained attack. Uh, That's the entire attack itself. In others, it actually leads on to other attacks. So if you look at the sort of self-contained attack, if you have a, a scraper that goes across a, a, a media site, a newspaper site or something that's usually locked behind a paywall, you could extract all of those newspaper articles from there, 
and resell them or just hand them out for free. Similar things with, say, stock image sites or stock video sites, any sort of media site that sells content that is put on the internet, it could essentially extract from that for resale elsewhere or to, to offer free, essentially subversing that, that organization. In other cases, it may actually be used to inform another attack. So you could use it to identify a particular URL or path that you, is of particular interest to you. You could look for a specific thing on a website by extracting all that information. One of the more common uses of it that we see is against the retail sector in scalping attacks. So a, a scraper will essentially sit on, say, a particular page of an interesting product, repeatedly making loads and loads and loads and loads of requests very, very rapidly in order to look for the exact moment at which, say, a, a high demand, low supply item becomes available. Once the scraper has pulls back that the item is now available and in stock, it will inform a scalper bot, uh, the scalper section of it, to place the item into the basket and check out with it as many times as possible, as quickly as possible. Acquiring, say, 200 of, say, a limited edition doll or a collectible card or something like that, and then push those for sale elsewhere at a marked up price, making a lot of money. We saw this a lot with PlayStation 5s during lockdown, that sort of thing. You see it with trainers a lot at the minute. Those are perhaps the most popular targets at the moment, uh, rare sneakers, uh, that sort of thing. So the scraper bot essentially is, is a really versatile bot that's used in loads of different situations, uh, either for a whole attack in itself or to facilitate subsequent attacks. And as a consequence, I see it as quite a significant problem. Yeah, because like you say, it can be deployed for a myriad of different outcomes. It's a really interesting one. And, you know, we've talked a lot today about skip flagging and how scraper bots are used there. Shall we also talk a little bit about whether scraper bots are always bad? They can be used for good, right, Matt? They can absolutely be used for good. One of the uses that we saw during, again, uh, the COVID pandemic was monitoring of vaccine sites. There were lots of vaccine sites where you could book for vaccination appointments. And a lot of people were very desperate to get in there, but they weren't sure when they would be available in their local area and so forth. And it was quite difficult, particularly for uh, those people who perhaps aren't quite so technically adept to try to find these appointments and, and figure out when they're available, when they're not, how to book them and so forth. We actually saw a lot of people creating these bots that would simply scan and essentially alert often on Twitter or via email people to say, hey, click this link and go through to book now. There are slots available. And that was a, a really interesting use of scraper bots that I initially thought was really good. But what we saw, it actually then developed a bit over time as more and more people started doing the same thing. We ended up seeing some vaccine sites, particularly in the US, where it was a lot quite often done hospital by hospital. These sites weren't built for the amount of traffic that a scraper bot can produce, and some of the scraper bots weren't built very well. So they just make ridiculous amounts of requests to these sites, and with one of them would have been fine, two of them also fine. 50, 60, 100 of these badly built scraper bots hitting the site suddenly became a problem and brought the site down, making vaccination booking impossible. So we have this really weird sort of interaction between it being the intent behind this was good, but the actual outcome was in fact, the exact opposite of what was intended. So it became a rather interesting ethical question. So as you said, like, you know, initially it was a good thing. I, I suppose it's like anything, really. You know, the, the object, the bot itself is not a bad thing. It's the use of it that is bad. Uh, to use Star Wars as an example, lightsabers are neither good nor evil. Both the Jedi and the Sith use them. That is a fantastic analogy there, Matt. It means that all of us understood it perfectly. Okay, so do you think there is... So instances like you just described there, Matt, where the application of scraper bots 
has been applied for both good and for bad, you've got more people using them. Does that mean that scraper bots have subsequently become more sophisticated? We might think about API scraping in this instance. So what, what do we know about that? What can people be doing to protect, say, their APIs and understand this evolution of scraper bot attacks? Okay, so I think first it's, it's important to understand the difference between uh, web scraping and API scraping. So typically what web scrapers do is they look at a website and they get content from that website and they can use that whichever way they want. They can pull that data, put it on their own website, or they can, they can even do a full clone of the website if they wanted to, to pull traffic away and act as like a, a man in the middle attack for phishing attacks. API scraping is slightly different. They use the API endpoint to get data rather than the content. In both cases, basically, if you want to stop this, these scrapers, you're going to need some kind of multi-layered protection. Like as we mentioned before, you could have some kind of capture. Now, serving capture against an API endpoint is, is not easy. Uh, it, it used to be iron impossible, but we're getting to a point now where it's, uh, it's very much possible. To understand how to protect against scraper bots, do you first need to know they're there? And how does one understand or identify that scraper bots are on their website? Because we know from past experience that there is a risk of a lot of dwell time when it comes to detecting scraper bot activity. It can go under the radar. And that's why attacks like arbitrage betting are, you know, that's how they're facilitated because that scraper bot activity, it's low and slow. It can take you a long time to detect. Being able to identify it, is that the most important thing, do you think, to tackling the problem? Yeah, I think identifying them is, is, is a very important factor. And, and I suppose identifying them could be quite difficult. I mean, because these scraper bots are essentially pummeling your infrastructure with requests. So that can mess with your SEO data. It can screw with analytics. Conversion can go right down. And it's only when you start looking at that data and you'll start looking, why is everyone accessing this certain URL? Why is everyone trying to go to these particular links, but we're not converting? What, what, what is the problem there? So yeah, the first part of that is to understand what these scrapers are and what they're trying to do. So as Matt said, it's understanding the outcome. So why might a scraper bot be used on my website? But I think one of the ways you can also approach it is if you know you have a, an alternative problem, say, yeah, if we take uh, gambling as an example, you have people doing ARB betting. What do they need to do ARB betting? Well, they need to know the odds and they need to know them to the second. How are they doing that so rapidly, so accurately? Well, they must be getting this information off our site. So I guess they're scraping us. So now you know you have a scraping problem. It's just a matter of finding where the scraping is happening. And as Gary was saying, that depends on the differences of the site. And you need to just look at where you're seeing unusual amounts of traffic or unusual behaviors on the site. Uh, one of the common things my team actually highlights is we often see uh, companies will have, say, a lot of their content on the site and be like, well, we're not seeing any odd behavior on those URL paths, so I guess we're not being scraped. And then what we're able to often find is, say, an exposed API that actually relinquishes all of the information from the site on a single request. So suddenly scraping doesn't need to be aggressive. So people often think of scraping as very aggressive. It doesn't need to be, depending on how you've architected, how you've built and set up your site. If you put all of that information on a single page, a single request can get it back. If you put it on an API and allow it all to go out in a single request, attackers will make a single request and get it out. And if that API is unprotected, then you're knackered. So yeah, it's all about recognizing that weakest point, your greatest vulnerability, acknowledging that and being a bit more sophisticated in your thinking to, 
detect those bots. And I suppose, to your point, Matt, think outside the box. Yeah, the, the attackers certainly are. In, in fact, one of the easier ways we find to actually think outside the box is to go and find the people doing the attacks and see what they're doing, what they're talking about. Because they might, they quite often will tell in public forums, or if you talk to them, they might actually tell you how exactly they're doing this. And that can really reveal to you how they're launching that attack. Well, yeah, if they've worked really hard to exploit the system, they want to tell people about it. Exactly. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. We've covered some really interesting topics. I think I could have talked about skip flagging for hours because it is so interesting. You know, we may see that topic develop over time. So watch this space, hear this space, come back. We might talk about it again. It will be really interesting. Yes, thank you for joining us today. If anybody would like to hear more about what is coming up on the cybersecurity sessions, you can follow us at CybersecPod. You can also send us questions, find out more about our panelists on each and every episode. You can subscribe and also leave reviews. Thank you all very much. And I look forward to seeing you all again on next month's episode. Detect, stop, protect. That's Netasea's ethos when it comes to stopping bot attacks. And it should be your ethos too, because who has time to stop billions of automated threats? Netasea does, up to six times more effectively than the competition. Block bad bots for good. Visit netasea.com.